Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 13, 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of God to us. Be to God. Hey, good morning. Y'all can grab a seat. Uh, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. I love that we just read a text that said stay awake three times on daylight savings time. So there you go. We planned that. Uh, not really. That was, uh, if we planned it, we wouldn't be preaching uh, the complexities of Mark 13 on daylight savings time on the beginning of uh, spring break. So the fact that you're here is like, I think you're really committed that you're here today. So it's good to have you if you're in town visiting family. Uh, we love that you're here. If this is your first time to Frontline, man, let us know what questions you have. We're kind of all on a, a spectrum of faith here. So a lot of us have been walking with Jesus for years and years and years. Some of us just started following Jesus. Uh, there's some of us here that are not sure what we think about Jesus. We're wrestling. We're trying to process uh, his claims and, and, and stuff that the Bible says. So we're really glad that you're here. Uh, just a few things before we jump in. Uh, today, we are going to wrap up Mark 13. So hold, hold your applause. <laughs> we're wrapping up Mark 13. If you've been with us the last few weeks, it has been a wild journey. And it's not like we're just doing Mark 13. This is our 39 weeks to really walk through uh, the gospel of Mark. So we're, we're 39 weeks in. And we're going to end on Easter Sunday looking at the resurrection account in Mark. So really excited about that. We're just a few weeks away, if you can believe it or not, from wrapping up this entire gospel account, studying the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus, who he is, and what you and I should do in light of that. Uh, so that's coming up. I'm excited for that. One thing to put on your calendars is on March 23rd, you've heard us talk about this, we're going to be hosting a, an evening of eschatology with my good friend, Dr. Sam Storms. He's coming in to do some training on eschatology. If that's a new word to you, eschatology is the study of the last things or the events surrounding the, the return of Jesus, the final return of Jesus. And there's a lot there, and it's really actually helpful to know. It shapes the way that you live today. So I want to invite you out to that. If you have kids and you want childcare, listen, if you have kids and you want childcare, go to frontlinechurch.com slash events and register. You need to register so that we can know how many kids to expect for that and make sure we have the proper amount of help. Uh, you don't have to register for the event if you just want to come to the event, but if you need childcare, be sure and register at frontlinechurch.com slash events. So excited for that. And just to say again, this is not like a hobby horse of our church. 
we happen to hit Mark 13 on our journey through this gospel, and it's raising questions about eschatology. So we're taking the last two weeks, today's our third week, to just slowly work through Mark 13 and, and then hosting this night to try to answer questions and provide clarity where often there's a lot of confusion. Sound good? Okay. Uh, you guys, are you, are you okay? Did you get enough coffee today? Yeah, okay. All right, here we are. We're, we're going to jump in. Let me pray for us, and we'll get after it. Father, thank you, for, thank you for this book, and thank you for not just this gospel account, but your whole word. Just a minute ago, we stood not under my authority, but under your authority, under the authority of the word. And I'm standing underneath your authority right now, and I pray that if there's anything that I say today that's unhelpful or distracting or just not in line with your heart and not in line with your word, I pray that it would be very quickly forgotten. If there's anything that I say today that is in line with your word, pray that you would train us and teach us and that you would use this today to shape how we live in this world. And uh, we just, we want your heart. We want to be people that are people of the word. And so let us be serious today about it. Let us think deeply about you and think accurately about you. And then I pray that it wouldn't just be thoughts, but this would, would actually change the way that we love you with our mind and our heart and our soul and our strength. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. As early as the second century, various people started to claim that the second coming of Jesus was imminent and would actually occur in their lifetime. Let me give you just a few examples. In the second century, there was a man named Montanus who proclaimed that the appearance of the new Jerusalem would occur before his death. In the third century, there was another man named Novation who gathered a huge following of people as they eagerly awaited the second coming of Jesus and the destruction of the world. In the third century, I'm sorry, in the fourth century, there's a man named Donatus who gained attention when he claimed that God would only choose 144,000 people to be invited into heaven and that the end of the world was at hand. In the fifth century, it was the sack of Rome by the Vandals that led many Christians to believe that that was the definitive event marking the end of the world and the return of Jesus. Do you guys remember Y2K? at all. Some of you aren't old enough to remember Y2K, which is crazy. But Y2K was bonkers, man. Everybody was like, the world's going to end and buying canned foods. And we were all kind of eagerly watching the clock, awaiting. Well, there's actually a Y1K. I don't know if you know this. In 999, the last day of the year, the old Basilica of St. Peter's in Rome was filled to the brim, hundreds upon hundreds of people weeping and trembling as they worshiped, eagerly waiting for the end of the world. Many of those people had that day or that week sold property or given away homes or possessions to the poor as one final act of contrition, hoping that God would have some bit of mercy on them when he busted through the sky and returned again to this earth. That happened, a similar event happened, not just in 999, but in 1100 and 1200 and in 1245. In 1346, many well-meaning Christians believed that the black death, death the, the black plague, that killed millions of people in Europe and Asia was the event indicating the immediate return of Jesus. The 100 years war, which lasted between the middle of the 14th century and the 15th century, was thought to be the great Armageddon and the book of Revelation that would usher in the immediate return of Jesus. Even in the 16th century, a guy like Martin Luther, the great reformer, believed that Jesus would come back in his lifetime and repeatedly stated that. And actually, he said on multiple occasions that there's no way the world is going to last another 300 years. And yet here we are. And this goes on and on and on. I could keep 
talking, but you get the point. Through the French Revolution, the Revolutionary War, the American Civil War, World War I and World War II, and all the other wars, including the war with Russia and Ukraine and the stuff that people are posting on social media, as much of like last week or two weeks ago, the end of the world is at hand. Jesus is about to come back. Now, why do I share all of that? Here's why. Because when it comes to the second return of Jesus, the, the final return of Jesus, there are two unique temptations that all of us as followers of Jesus face. The first temptation is obsessive speculation. And this is what we see playing out in church history where people are looking at events and looking at different news headlines and looking at things that are taking place in our, in our world to try to discern when Jesus is about to come back. Even though, friends, hear me very clearly, Scripture does not give us any indication of what signs are going to happen before Jesus comes back. None at all. Zero. The only thing that we know is that Jesus is going to come back. That's it. So this obsessive speculation about the second return of Jesus, what it actually does, and I just want to be pastorally honest, the people that I know that are embracing this type of speculation have lost the ability to be present in the moment and actually are kind of having this escapist mentality where they're just waiting around for God to suck them off of planet Earth and take them to heaven. And so what's happening is they, they've lost any ethical vision for life of how to live in the here and now. And that's so much of what Jesus teaches us is how to live in the here and now in light of his final return. And so escapism and just kind of waiting for God to come back uh, and just kind of twiddling our thumbs in the meantime is not Jesus's vision for his church. That's one temptation. Now, the second temptation is, I think, more common in a room like this. My assumption is that most of us fall into this temptation, which is apathetic cynicism. Like, I wonder how much the return of Jesus plays a functional role in your life and in my life and how we live in the day-to-day. -day. I wonder how much you think about Jesus coming back. My assumption is if I injected all of us with truth serum that we would theologically assent to believing this as a doctrine, but because we've seen the wackos and the weirdos with their charts and their graphs and all that, we don't want any part of that. We don't want any business with that. So we've kind of just wholesale neglected this reality that Jesus is going to come again, and therefore our lives are not, are, are not marked by that reality in a functional way whatsoever. We have the doctrine of it, but we don't have a functional practice of his final return. So wherever you find yourself today, if you're kind of in that place of obsessive speculation or if you're in the place where I find myself often, which is apathetic cynicism towards the second coming, I think today's going to be really helpful. Because in Mark 13, Jesus wants to give his disciples a framework for how to live in the times between the time, the times between the first coming of Jesus and his final return. Now, because I've spent the last two weeks saying how Mark 13 isn't about the second coming of Jesus, and I worry that some of you are like, does he believe in the second coming of Jesus? I, I want to start with not Mark 13, but just what the Bible teaches about that. So if you're taking notes, three things that I want you to see. I normally don't tell you my points in advance, but I think it'll be helpful today is kind of a you are here moment and where we're headed. Three things that I want you to see. The first is our one certainty that we have. The second is the two different interpretations that we're going to look at. And the, th the third is the three postures that Jesus is inviting us to take. So one, two, three. That's how we're going to do it. All right, here's the first one, the one certainty that you and I have. Friends, Jesus is going to come back. That's a fact. All historically Orthodox Christians believe that Jesus will physically, bodily return to this earth. As the Apostles' Creed says, he ascended into heaven 
and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is going to come back. And this isn't something to be afraid of. This isn't something to be nervous about. This is something as a follower of Jesus that is the source of your greatest hope. This is like Christmas on steroids, the day that Jesus returns to planet earth. All right, so let me just give you a few scriptures. Where do we see this biblically? Well, there's a ton of places. I'll just give you three. Acts 1. And when Jesus said these things, this is right after his death and resurrection, 40 days on earth that Jesus spent walking around teaching after his resurrection. And when Jesus said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. I love that imagery of a cloud taking Jesus out of their sight, especially given what we looked at last week, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Remember, that's not a reference to the second coming of Jesus. That, that's not a reference of Jesus coming from heaven to the earth, but actually going from the earth to heaven, to the place of dominion and power and glory as the king over every king. So here he is, the Son of Man coming on the clouds in Acts chapter 1, headed to the Ancient of Days, God the Father. Verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, presumably angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I love this. They don't know what's happening. Like, where's he going? Well, what's happening right now? Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Acts 1, he's coming back. Don't gaze in the heavens. Get to work. You've got stuff to do. Jesus will come back. Fast forward in the story of the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is a big, loud event. Everybody's going to know when it's happening. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, contrary to what is popular, popularly thought, this is not a passage about the rapture. I mentioned last week that we would talk about the rapture today, that I try to give you my at least hopefully biblically informed perspective on what the rapture is. And when I wrote out my sermon, I was like, there's no time. I mean, this is going to be like a 10-minute detour. And so let me just suffice it to say that um, like when it comes to the rapture, if you, if you go to BibleGateway.com and you select all translations and you type in the word rapture, you know what you're going to find? Nothing, because the Bible doesn't talk about it. The word rapture never shows up in the Bible. It's not ever mentioned. The concept is never taught one single time in Scripture. Definitely not in this verse. I don't believe that the rapture is a thing, okay? And I know that that might shock you. I know that might scare you. But it wasn't even taught until the 1830s. No Christian in church history ever believed in the rapture prior to 1830 and the rise of dispensationalism. And if that, like, freaks you out or, like, undoes your faith or if that rattles you or if that, like, you know, produces some questions, or maybe you're in the room and you've got PTSD from rapture theology and you're like, that makes me feel a thousand percent better. Here's what I want to invite you to do. After the service, around 1230, we're going to do like a brief overview of what the Bible says about the rapture, and then we'll do some Q&A. Sound good? So come with questions. We'll talk about it. But just suffice it to say, the Bible doesn't ever teach anything about the rapture. 
In fact, this is a verse about Jesus coming back to the earth. And what Paul says at the end is, encourage one another with these words. This isn't meant to freak you out. This is meant to encourage you and help you know how to live. Amen? Did did I totally lose you on that? Some of you are like, I'm out. He's a heretic. All right, just come to the Q&A. We'll talk about it. All right, one final passage about the the certainty that we have. Uh, This is the very end of our story. If you're a follower of Jesus, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Can I say something about that language? A new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You know when the Apostle Paul says, I'm a new creation in Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. The old me has died and the new me has come. Does that mean that Paul himself had died? No, it means that spiritually he's been totally remade. He's a new person. He's living out of a totally new identity. This is not a verse where uh, the Bible's teaching that God's going to take the world and throw it in the trash can and start over. Just like he makes us as new creations in Christ Jesus, he's going to make this world a new creation. He's redeeming not just us and our bodies, but friends, he's redeeming this world. He's redeeming Oklahoma. He's redeeming this planet. So look at what it says. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, doing what? Coming down out of heaven from God. Not us going there, but heaven coming here. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Not I am making all new things. I am making all things new. Friends, this is the end of our story. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're living on the front cover of your story. But the rest of your life, the rest of your story is that there is coming a day where Jesus is going to crack the sky. He is going to bring heaven to this earth and every bit of pain, every bit of mourning, every bit of sadness, every bit of, uh, of, of suffering because of sin and brokenness in this world, Jesus is going to right it and make all the sad things come untrue and he is going to remake this earth. That is good news. So it doesn't matter how much suffering we have now because it's temporary and it won't last forever. It doesn't matter how much difficulty and oppression and fighting and all that. All of this is going to go away and Jesus is going to to basically, like I've said this a million times, but it's the beauty and the beast deal where Belle kisses the beast and the curse is lifted and this gothic ugly castle becomes beautiful and those, those humans that are you know, trapped in inanimate objects become humans again. That's a beautiful picture of what it's gonna be like when Jesus cracks the sky. Curse is lifted and all of a sudden we are made in the way that we are supposed to be and this world is fixed in the way that God intended it to be. So I don't know what's gonna happen with our world. I don't know what's going to happen with the type of culture that my kids and their kids grew up in. I don't know what's going to happen with our economy. I don't know how high gas prices are going to rise. I don't know what's going to happen with the war with Ukraine and Russia and the complexities with Iran and the complexities with North Korea and China. I don't know what's going to happen with all of that, but here's what I do know. Jesus is the king. He hasn't forgotten us, and he is coming back. That is the certainty that we have. Amen? That's the first thing I want you to see. It's an established fact. This is coming for us.
So, Mark 13. Let's jump in. Now, I, I, I love the shows on Netflix where it's like previously on, and it fills you in on all the things that you forgot about. So, previ- previously on Mark 13. Jesus had left the temple. The very beginning of chapter 13, he'd walked out. And this is not just him leaving the temple. That's a prophetic statement. He's exiting the temple and, and what's being said there is this place that was intended to be the dwelling place with God and people, where the very presence of God would be found in this temple, Jesus is leaving it. And now Jesus, as the presence of God, the new temple, is, is, is basically saying, I'm rejecting this temple system because it's gotten so distorted and so broken. He leaves and the glory has departed. Now, the disciples don't pick up on this, the beginning of chapter 13, They're still pointing to the temple on their way out and they're pointing to the beautiful building and the architecture and the grandeur of the temple and then Jesus makes the shocking statement. He says, hey friends, do you see that beautiful temple? Not one stone will be left on another stone. This whole temple is going to be destroyed. He prophetically announces the destruction of the temple that we know historically later occurred in 70 AD. Now, here's what we see in Mark. In verses 5 through 13, what Jesus is doing is offering his disciples, hey, here's what the world can expect between 33 AD and 70 AD, and here's what the church can expect between 33 AD and 70 AD. Wars and rumors of wars. Uh, You're going to experience all these famines and and economic disasters. You're going to experience physical, natural disasters like earthquakes and tornadoes and all these things. And then Jesus gives the church what the church can expect. There's going to be people that claim to speak for God and don't. There's going to be cultural pushback and opposition and betrayal among Christians. And there's going to be all this stuff that happens between 33 AD and 70 AD. Then we saw that in verse 14, there was a turn. Verses 14 to 31, Jesus makes a turn. And he, he, up until that point, he's saying, don't freak out when all those things happen. But in verse 14, he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, you remember that from last week? When you see Titus and the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, get the heck out because the temple's gonna be destroyed and so will Jerusalem. And we saw how that happened between uh, really April and September of 70 AD. There was horrific tribulation called in scripture the great tribulation that already occurred. And all of these things that unfolded as the destruction of the temple was taking place. This is what Jesus has been talking about. So friends, everything that Jesus has been saying at least up through verse 31 has been in direct reference to the events leading up to the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the temple. Now we're entering into the very last section of Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. So with that background in mind, let's work our way through this text. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Let me pause there for a minute. I think it kind of throws some of us off that Jesus here is saying that there's some things that he does not know. Isn't that weird that Jesus doesn't know certain things according to this text? It's like, how does Jesus not know he's God? God knows everything. That's true. Jesus is God and God does know everything. But friends, church fathers have said, this was their famous phrase, that remaining what he was, 
Jesus became what he was not in his incarnation. That he actually remained God, he didn't cease to be God, but he took on humanity for the first time. And when he took on humanity, he actually chose to live fully out of his humanity, not living out of his divinity and all of the the power that he had as God. He actually chose to live a normal human life as a full human being, even though he was also God. And so in light of that, there are certain things that Jesus is saying that God the Father had not revealed to Jesus in his humanity, therefore he did not know them. That shouldn't be weird. It's like, is it weird that Jesus gets hungry? Does God get hungry? No. Did Jesus? Yes, because he lived out his humanity. Did Jesus get tired? Yes. Does God get tired? No, he doesn't sleep or slumber. But Jesus does because he's human. He needed to sleep. Likewise, he doesn't know everything, only knows what the Father reveals to him. And so he's saying, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I love that moment. That's like Jesus looking directly into the camera. What I say to you, and then he turns to the camera, I say to all, stay awake. So he's not just talking to his disciples then, he's also talking to us today. Now, here's the million-dollar question. This is what we need to wrestle with. What does Jesus mean by, but concerning that day or that hour in verse 32? What does he mean by that? What is he talking about? And godly men and women who are much smarter than me and much better at understanding theology and what Scripture says have read this text and walked away with two very different interpretations. And this leads to the second point that I want you to see, the two interpretations of the ending of Mark 13 that you and I need to grapple with. The first interpretation is essentially saying that in verse 32, Jesus makes a turn, and now he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. He's talking about his final return from heaven to this earth to make all things new. That's what he's talking about. The other interpretation says, no, Jesus isn't talking about a second coming. He is continuing to talk about the events of 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. And that coming language is just like we saw last week, God coming in judgment against the temple and against Jerusalem as the Son of Man coming in the clouds. So here are the two really good interpretations, and there's really good arguments for both. So let me just start with this one. Option number one, the second coming. If, if you take this view, what do people say about why this is the case, why this is actually Jesus turning the conversation towards the final return of Jesus? By the way, I know this is a bit nerdy. I apologize. It's in the Bible. It matters. So like, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is like love the Lord with your mind moment, right? We're going to try to think deeply about this. Option one, second coming of Jesus. Here are the arguments that are put forward. First, they'll say, well, there's a change in subject and language that starts in verse 32. Like if you read the whole chapter, here's the argument. Jesus is talking in generalities. He's saying, you know, between 33 AD and 70 AD, there's going to be these things play out. 
wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and blah, 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 blah. So it's more of a general time. And then it gets a little bit more specific. He talks about this abomination of desolation and tells them to be on the lookout for that. But then it gets really specific in verse 32. And he uses this phrase, but concerning that day and that hour. And the argument is here now Jesus is talking about a specific day or hour that no one knows, not even Jesus himself and, and, and the argument goes, well, if Jesus knew about the destruction of the temple and knew what events would be leading up to the destruction of the temple, how would he not know when the destruction of the temple would occur, right? So the argument is there's a change in subject and language that starts in verse 32. The second argument is that the word day is often shorthand for the final return of Jesus in the New Testament. And that's true. That's a good argument. The word day is shorthand for the final return of Jesus. Let me give you a few examples. Matthew 7. On that day, this is the day of judgment. This is the day of Jesus' final return. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. On that day. Here's another example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's talking about a specific day. Another example, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I've fought the good fight, the apostle Paul says. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on what? On that day. And not only to me, but to all who also have loved his appearing. So it's used as shorthand for the day of the Lord, the final return of Jesus, his final appearing from heaven to this earth. The third argument that says this is about the second coming says something like this. The parallel passage in Matthew 24 seems to point towards the final return of Jesus. Remember the gospel accounts, at least the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are essentially telling the same story, but from different camera angles right? So Mark 13 shows up again in Matthew 24, and that shows up again in Luke 21, but all from a different camera angle. So Matthew 24, if you read it carefully, it seems as though near the end of Matthew 24, Jesus makes a turn and starts to talk about his second coming. And then if you read Matthew 25, the parables that are given there really start to sound like second coming language and judgment language. So the argument is, Mark 13 isn't as clear, but if you look at Matthew 24, it's super clear that this is about the second coming of Jesus. So that's option one, that the end of Mark 13 is about the second coming. Option two, the events of 70 AD. The events of 70 AD. Here's the arguments that this position is given. Well, there's actually no significant change in the language or in the context in verse 32. Like, like as an exercise later today, what you should do is just read through Mark 13 and ask yourself, is, is it really true that Jesus is suddenly introducing a totally new concept about the second coming in Mark 13? Because it does not feel that way when you read it. Everything that you're reading in Mark 13 sounds exactly like what he's been saying about the judgment that he's bringing on Jerusalem and on the temple. And so they say there isn't any new change in subject matter. And, and here's what I've been trying to say week in and week out the last few weeks. Context matters. Don't bring in stuff that's not in the text and then cram it into the text. Ask yourself, what would the original readers and, and authors intended for this to be? And is the second coming a part of it? It doesn't appear that it is. 
The second argument that's given is that it actually appears that Jesus did not know the exact time frame of the destruction of the temple. Now, this is an interesting argument. I think it's really helpful. Think about it. Why did Jesus not tell his disciples, hey, in, uh, in April of 70 AD, get the heck out of Jerusalem? Why did he not say that? Like he could have just as easily said, between April and September of 70 AD, things will get crazy. So in March, pack your bags and go ahead and head out. Instead, Jesus doesn't do that. He says, hey, when you see this sign of Titus and the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's when you get out of Jerusalem. Why did he give them a sign and not a date? Well, the argument goes because Jesus did not know the date, that the Father had not revealed that specific date to Jesus. He'd revealed elements about what would lead up to that event, but not the exact time frame. It's a good argument. And then the final argument that people make for why this is the events of 70 AD is that the disciples did not have a theological grid for the final return of Jesus in Mark 13. If you read through Mark all the way up till chapter 13, the second coming of Jesus has not one time been mentioned or alluded to in the slightest. So is it really true that just randomly Jesus is making a hard right turn talking about the second coming when he hasn't said anything about it all the way leading up to this event? And even more so, the disciples, to say it kindly, we're not the brightest, you know, sharpest knives in the drawer, right? When Jesus is talking to them on three separate occasions, Jesus is like, hey, fellas, I'm going to die. And they're like, huh? And he's like, yeah, no, like that's a thing. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, huh? And he's like, no, really, like very clearly, this is what the Romans are going to kill me. The Jews are going to hand, I'm going to die and rise. And they're just like, every time it's right over the head. They don't think Jesus is still going to die at this point in the story. So do you honestly think that they have a grid for not only Jesus rising from the dead, but then coming back at the end of time to, to renew all things? Like, is it true that they could have thought that in Mark 13? So those are the arguments. It's either about the second coming of Jesus or the events of 70 AD. So which is it, second coming or 70 AD? Well, let me quote from two scholars who are much smarter than me. Scholar number one, Sam Storms. Our Lord is clearly moving from the subject of Jerusalem and its temple to that of the second coming. Sam Storms says, clearly, it's about the second coming. N.T. Wright, another scholar, brilliant thinker. The first level meaning clearly is once more about the imminent destruction of the temple. This is the subject of the entire chapter. N.T. Wright says, clearly, it's about the events of 70 AD. I don't think that these guys know what the word clearly means. <laughs> I, it's not clear at all. It's very confusing. And they're both like, clearly, it means this. And clearly, it means this. Clearly, you guys are confused. And we're not really sure which one it is. And here's why I say that. Friends, it's okay to have opinions. I love opinions. I have opinions about things I have no business having opinions about. You can ask me my opinion on anything, and I'll have an opinion, and I shouldn't. And I'll argue with about it. Like, I'll, I'll argue till the paint comes off the wall about it. But here's the point of what I'm trying to say. There are certain things in Scripture that you and I can be 100% certain of, and there are other things that we can believe but actually only be about 70% certain on. And there are other things that we can believe and are only 50% certain on. And there are times where you're like, I don't know. And those are really three important words that every Christian needs to learn. I, I don't know. 
I don't know. I know whatever the Bible says is true, but I don't know what it says about everything. There are certain things that are confusing, and I want to invite you and myself into having a little bit more theological humility because, friends, there are just sometimes things that are hard to understand and we don't know. You have two scholars who are fluent in Hebrew and Greek, some of the most leading scholars on this topic today, and they both came up with two different positions. So where do I land? Like if you're to put a gun to my head, I don't know why it has to be so violent. Don't put a gun to my head. Just, just ask me, and I'll tell, I've already told you I have opinions. I'll tell you what I think. Both sets of arguments are really compelling to me. In fact, while I was writing the sermon, I was like writing, you know, the arguments for position one and position two, and I got done with position one. I was like, that's it. That's, that's got to be it. And then I wrote my arguments for position two. I was like, that's, that's totally it too. That's got to, you know, I was convincing myself of both sides. So where do I stand in this current moment right now as I'm preaching? I'm about 55% sure that this is about the events of 70 AD. I think that Jesus is not making a hard right turn I don't think he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. It's debatable about Matthew 24, but I think that Jesus is talking about the events of 70 AD, and I could definitely be swayed. Now, that being said, that being said, here's the super fun thing about this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, why have you spent so much time on this if it doesn't matter? Why am I here? You don't matter. This church doesn't, you know, like this, okay. Here's what I mean. It does matter. It does matter. But it doesn't matter if you say option one or option two. Do you know why? Because the application that Jesus is going to give to his disciples and to us is the exact same no matter what path you take. It's one of those fun things where you really can't go wrong, even though there is a right interpretation out there because Jesus is going to tell you and I to do the same thing, no matter if this is the events of 70 AD or if this is the events of the second coming. Here's why. Here's why. Because Mark 13 is a microcosm of the story that you and I find ourselves in. And here's what I mean by that. Mark 13, Jesus is telling his disciples, between 33 AD and 70 AD, this, this unknown event where I come in judgment on Jerusalem and on the temple and in salvation of the church, between 33 AD and 70 AD, here are the natural outworking of life and what you can expect. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, cultural pushback on the church, people, you know, throwing you in prison, people persecuting you, doing all these things. This is what you can expect. And then there's going to come a day where I come and it's, and no one knows the day or the hour. And I'm going to come in judgment on Jerusalem and judgment on the temple. But simultaneously, I'm going to bring salvation. Remember, he warned the disciples and the church and the early church escaped the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. We have no record of any Christian dying in that siege because they escaped so Jesus showed up in judgment and in salvation. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like everything that you, can I, you and I can expect between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming when he comes to make all things new. What should we expect in this world? Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, natural disasters, and economic disasters. We're seeing this play out right now. What can we expect? People who claim to speak for God and don't. What can the church expect? Cultural pushback. Hey, friends, it's not like weird that the church is not popular anymore in the West. We've never been popular. And now it's like we're just becoming less popular. And eventually it's going to lead to more persecution. 
And we're already seeing this play out all across the world with followers of Jesus. Jesus told us that we could expect suffering, that we would actually be taking up our cross and have to deny ourselves and follow after him. And that includes suffering and tragedy and brokenness and people hating us just because we follow Jesus. It is what we can expect. So don't think that these are like events that are leading you to believe that we're living in the last days when Scripture's been saying that this is the last days ever since the, the, the first coming of Jesus up until his final return. And guess what? There's coming a day, no one knows the day of the hour, where Jesus will return again. And he's going to return just like in 70 AD. He's going to show up in judgment and in salvation. He's going to show up in judgment for all those who opposed him and rejected him and salvation for people who repented of sin and placed their faith in Jesus and followed after Jesus. This is what you can expect. So Mark 13 is like this microcosm story of what the rest of our human story is going to be like until Jesus comes back. And that leads me to the last thing that I want you to see, the three postures that Jesus invites us into. Look at verse 33. Be on guard. That's the first posture. Be on guard. Friends, I know it's not popular, and I know that we're secular, and we've pushed out any sense of the transcendent, and if you can't see it or put it in a test tube, it's not real. But we have three real enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're real, and they are coming for you, and they have been coming for you, and they have been coming for me. The world is the systems and the structures that are opposed to the way of Jesus. The world is the systems and philosophies and structures that are, that are opposed to the way of God in the world. And you and I, we are contributing to that and a part of that and, and being affected by that and being malformed by that. And there's also the flesh. This is the enemy within. The fact that we've, at times in our lives, lowered the drawbridge and just invited the enemy to come on in. And even if you've been walking with Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years, there's still a part of you and I that at times wants to dethrone Jesus and get the right to call our own life what is right and what is wrong. There are times where we want to create our own identity. There are times where we want to do our own thing, where we want to push Jesus out and pursue our own flesh. This is a real enemy. We had to be on guard, Jesus says. And then the devil, he's not like some miniature, you know, red person on your shoulder with a pitchfork. We have real spiritual forces of darkness at play in our world. There's just simply no way to understand some of the evil that exists in our world without understanding the demonic reality that we have in this world. Coming for you and for me, where Peter says, Satan himself is roaring, he's, he's walking around like a roaring lion, seeking what? Someone to devour. This idea, this notion that just because you're a Christian that you're safe from the enemy, it's, it's never taught in Scripture. We're not safe, right? It's never said in Scripture. We're actually told to be on guard. We're told that we have an enemy that's trying to devour us. Friends, here's my point. Be on guard as a follower of Jesus living in the time between the times, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The posture that you and I are to take is a lot like our brothers and sisters are taking in the capital city of Kiev right now. Do you know what they're doing every day in Kiev right now? They're awaiting Russian invasion. So do you think they're like binge-watching Netflix? No, they're making Molotov cocktails. Do you think that they're sitting around wondering about their 401k? No. They're learning how to use a rifle for the first time, whereas a month ago they never even touched one. Do you think that they're sitting around just kind of living their best life and doing their... 
they are taking a wartime posture because there is an enemy that in just a matter of days is invading. Friends, I'm not in any way belittling what they're experiencing, but we are at a greater spiritual risk. We have the world and the flesh and the devil, and most of us as followers of Jesus are not in any sense of the word on guard. We're being malformed, deformed by the world. That's why we're doing counterformation as a church, because it matters. We have to be formed in a different way because Jesus is saying, be on guard. Take a wartime posture as a follower of Jesus. And that leads to the second thing that Jesus says in Mark 13. Verse 33 says, be on guard, keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Listen to the words of Jesus. He's looking at you and I in the eyes, And he's saying, between my first coming and my second coming, stay awake. Stay awake. Friends, in six verses, three times, Jesus is saying this. Why? Because you and I are so often lulled to sleep. There's so many things in our world that just make us sleepy and drowsy as Christians. Jesus warned us in Mark 4 about the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things that enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Friends, I just want to ask you to take a, a real like, assessment of your life. What in your current life right now is lulling you to sleep? What in your life right now is making you drowsy? And it's often really good things. It's rarely bad things. It's like good things like pleasure or marriage or singleness or sexuality or your approach to food and alcohol, or your approach to binging shows and avoiding scripture. None of those things are inherently bad. Those are good gifts that God has given us. But there's a way that you and I can get so co-opted by this world is all that matters, YOLO, let's make the most of it, that we're no longer on guard and we're now drowsy and sleepy as followers of Jesus when Jesus is pleading with us, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, right? Over and over in the New Testament, it describes Christians as people of the day and those those people who are lost as people of the night. Think about that language, people of the day. Romans Romans 13 says this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And that leads me to the last posture, this phrase, do your job. I love this parable that Jesus gives in verse 34. He says, it's like a man going on a journey And when he leaves home, he puts the servants in charge. Look at this, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. In this parable, Jesus describes himself as a master and this world as his house. And you and I as the servants that are put in charge of this house. Can I just be blunt with you? 
if Jesus is dead, if his bones are some pile of bone dust in Palestine right now, if the second coming isn't real and Jesus isn't coming back, then nothing matters. Go do whatever you want to do. Go live however you want to live. Go enjoy this life. YOLO, because this is it. This is it. Have fun. Because today we eat and we drink and we're merry and tomorrow we die. But if Jesus is alive, if Jesus is the master of this house and he is coming home and he has put you and I in charge of his house in the meantime, then all of a sudden, every single thing you do deeply matters. Every decision, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way that you spend your sexuality, your singleness, your marriage, the way that you work your vocation, the way that you think about this life, all of a sudden is infused with meaning because he is the master and he's coming home to his house and he's left us in charge. How will he found the house that he has left us? It matters. What you do matters. Friends, I've heard people say, and I hate this, that uh, all we're doing in this world is like rearranging furniture on the Titanic, that the world is just going to go down. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. It's a story that starts on the earth and it ends on the earth. And what you do is not rearranging furniture on a ship that's going down. Jesus is going to remake this world, redeem it from the curse of sin. And you and I are building stuff and doing stuff that deeply matters for eternity. That's real. That's what Jesus is saying. Stay awake and do your job. That's what he's inviting us into. N.T. Wright says this, the Bible is not about the rescue of humans from the world, but about the rescue of humans for the world. And indeed, God's rescue of the world by means of those rescued humans. So what do we do? Between now, when Jesus comes back, we don't know when that'll be. It could be today, could be 100 years from now, could be 10,000 years from now. Be on guard, stay awake, do your job.